Amen. Lord, I thank you for the work of the cross. I thank you, Lord, that while it was tragic in the world's eyes, in our eyes, it was the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind. Lord, I pray as we go to your word right now, that you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. May you be our teacher. We love you. We praise you. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to have you here. I should turn this on. All right. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I want to encourage you to pray about coming out on Wednesday nights. We're currently going through the Old Testament book of Joshua. Great stuff. Catch you up again. Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, one of Paul's four what are called prison epistles. Paul's sitting in prison writing this letter to a church that he had pastored for as many as three years. A church that he had seen established and grow and become healthy. And now some ten years have gone by, and the word has come back to him, again, about the struggles that are going on in Ephesus. Now, just by way of quick reminder, Ephesus, remember, was a very, very wealthy city, not unlike the cities in California. It was a coastal city. It was a city that... Again, much of the the cargo came through from the seas, and it was a place, again, that was very wealthy, but it was also a place, much like Santa Cruz, that was very idolatrous. It had the greatest temple ever uncovered in all of history, as far as the Greek Greek people are concerned, this huge temple to the goddess Diana. And we know that when Paul first came on his third missionary journey into Ephesus, that he started a riot by speaking out against the idol worship that was going on in the city. So many people responded that they came out and started to burn their witchcraft books and burn their idols and set them on fire. And then the silversmiths who made money by making these idols got pretty upset because he was blowing their gig and making them lose their livelihood. You like the pornographers getting mad if everybody was burning their porn tapes or something, right? Got upset. Man, we're making money this way. And he said, you know what? He kept preaching the truth. And what happens is lives were changed. And the people started to cry out about how great the goddess Diana is. Now, he stayed there for three years. He established a growing and a healthy church. But we know later in Revelation chapter 2, the seven churches being mentioned there, the first one mentioned is Ephesus. And it says the Ephesian church had left its first love. So it's with this heart of a pastor that Paul is writing back to the people in Ephesus, this wealthy city, this affluent city, the city at the same time struggling with idolatry that was around it. Now as Paul began his letter in two weeks ago, when we saw the first half of chapter 1, the first thing he talked to them about was that their riches are in Christ. You know, too often when we are blessed, and you, if you live in this country and you, you, know, you knew what you were going to have for breakfast this morning, and you had a roof over your head, you're in the top 5% of the wealth in, this, in the world. I mean, we're blessed in this country. But the sad thing about it is, often, that when we have a great deal of wealth from the world's perspective, we stop being desperate for God. And his whole point was, guys, your riches are not in the things of this world. Your riches are in Christ. Now, 
He gave them 11 blessings of salvation. If you were here two weeks ago, he talked about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit. The work of the Father in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, one long sentence. He tells them they're blessed, they're chosen, they're predestined, they're adopted, and they're accepted. The work of the Son, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, and given an inheritance. And the work of the Holy Spirit, sealed and assured. And here's the thing, that's really riches, because those riches will outlast this life. You know, the things in this world are passing away, and when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last, and where we stand with Him is all that's going to matter. Man, that's black and white, isn't it? But you know what, it's so true. Nobody's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and wish they had worked a few more hours, or made a few more dollars, or bought a little bit nicer car, or had a little bit bigger house. It'll all be irrelevant. And he's telling the people in Ephesus, your riches are in Christ. And my exhortation to you, my exhortation to me, is that we would know where our riches are. That our riches are in our relationship with the Lord, not in the things that we accumulate in the world. And then last week, in the second half of Ephesians 1, we learned from Paul's example about prayer. Who we should pray for, how we should pray, and what we should pray for. Who are we to pray for? He said in the text last week, all the saints... And I talked about this, that he was praying for those who are faithful. And often we pray for those who are in trouble. Now I'm not saying we don't pray for those in trouble, we should. But we also need to pray for those who are faithful as well. Amen? Too often we just want to, so we find out someone's got cancer, we start praying for them, and we should. But at the same time, again as I said last week, those who the enemy is going to attack the most are those who are being used most mightily by God, and they ought to be the ones that are on our prayer list. Again, not just those who are struggling but are hurting, but those who are faithful. Not only who we should pray for, but how we should pray. He said, pray without ceasing. Again, not just in times of crisis, but in constant and intimate communion with God. Too many Christians today, we're crisis Christians. We come to the Lord when there's nowhere else. Last resort. Tried everything else, I better go ask God. You know what? We need to go to God first, not last. Amen? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not only who we pray for, not only how we pray, but lastly, he talked about what we should pray for. The number one thing we need to pray for is to know God better. That's the number one thing. Guys, too often what we pray for is to cure the symptoms. Talked about this last week. That we're trying to pray for the symptoms of the person who is struggling. Lord, deliver them from alcohol. That's a great prayer. But you know what? The real key is not delivering them from alcohol, but that they would come to know Christ. Because if they know the Lord, then alcohol will take care of itself. But too often we're praying, Lord, rid them of the leprosy, rid them of the cancer, instead of, Lord, use this to draw them unto yourself. Quit praying for the symptom and start praying for the cause. Start praying for the heart of the matter. He also prayed that they would know His calling upon their lives, the promise of heaven to come. That they would know how precious and valuable they are to the Lord. Can I tell you that I talk to people and I counsel people often. People are depressed and people are anxious and people are broken hearted. And too often it's because we forget how valuable we are to God. You are His treasured possession. Almighty God who, can, who put the stars in the sky by speaking the word. Who, tre- who can make anything. What does He treasure? He treasures you. So how do you determine the value of something, what somebody's willing to pay for it? And as we said last week, this is what he paid for you. He'd rather die than live without you. 
The next time you get bummed out, the next time you're depressed, the next time you're brokenhearted, just remember how much God loves you. He loves you far beyond what you can even imagine. And then lastly, he, he prayed that we would know His power. His power over sin and death, over every power and principality, that He is the name above all names. And as we pray for others, again, pray not that they be delivered from the symptom, but transformed by the power of God. So now as we get to chapter 2, he continues, and again, the theme words of this book, we see it over 35 times in this letter, is in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Christ, in Him. And as I said last week, not in Buddha, not in Muhammad, not in the New Age movement, not in my intellect, not in anything else, but in Christ, in Him alone, are we going to find the peace that surpasses all understanding? In Christ is the theme. So in chapter 1, he talked about our riches in Christ. And now as we come to chapter 2, he's going to talk about who we are in Christ. The first three verses we're going to see, again if you take notes, who we were before we came to know Christ. I'll tell you what, this is going to be, again, we need to be reminded sometimes. We are new creations in Christ, but every once in a while, we're not to go and live in our past and, you know, hang out there. We don't need to do that. We leave that which is behind and we move onward and upward in the upper calling of Christ Jesus. We move forward with Him. But it is good to remember what we've been delivered from. You know what? I love to hear the gospel. I don't know about you. And I've been saved a long time. But I still love to hear it. You know why? It blesses me every single time to remember what Christ did for me. It blesses me every single, not, every single time as I'm encouraged by what the Lord has done for me. So we're first going to see who we were before we came to know Christ. Then we're going to see God's work for us because of His grace, not our good works. And then God's work in us. Okay, so let's begin in verse 1. We're only going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. And we're going to look at who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. Beginning in verses 1 through 3, who we were before we came to know Christ, who we were outside of Him. And He says there in verse 1, and you. So this, you guys should all love this message because it's about one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> you. Isn't that true though? I'm always on my mind, right? I'm always thinking about me. I've said this many times, we got some new people here, so I'll say it again. If I took a picture of everybody in this room right now, and then put it up over on that wall and had everybody go look at it, whose picture would you look for first? <laughs> and whether that picture was good or not would be based on how good you look. If you look good and everybody else looks goofy, it's a sweet picture. <laughs> and if everybody else looks pristine and perfect, not a hair out of place, and you, know, and you look goofy, it's, it's, you'll tear it off the wall and burn it, burn it in a fire. <laughs> Because we're always about us. Well, guess what? This chapter is about you. And it's about me. And he says, and you. Now, Paul starts off this chapter picking up where he left off in the previous one. And ties us back to the previous chapter. So how did the last chapter end? God the Father was, he's saying, may you know the exceeding greatness of his power revealed in Christ, who raised him from the dead, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principalities and powers, who put everything under his feet. He gave him to be the head of all things, and you, and you. He's saying, look, here's who Christ is. Here's what Christ has done, and you. Now here's what Christ has done for you. Here's what he's done for you. It says here, 
and you he made alive. How many of you guys have Bibles where those three words are in italics? Every hand ought to be up if you're not looking at your Bible. All right? Why is that in italics? Quick Bible lesson for all of you. When you see words in italics in the Bible, that means they were added. They weren't in the original text. They were added there for understanding and typically are taken right out of the context. These words are taken out of verse 5. It's to help us understand what's coming. So he's saying, and you he made alive. But in the original text, that he made alive is not there. It just says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So he's saying, look, here's who Christ is. Here's what Christ has done. Here's the power of his resurrection. And you need to know the power in your life. You know why? Because you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Guys, this is not a popular message in the church today. I have pastors tell me all the time, Dave, you can't tell people they're sinners like that. They won't come back to church. And certainly we've had a lot of people not come back to church. But that's okay because... There are plenty of churches in town that will never tell you you're a sinner. But here's the thing, you guys. If you don't see you're a sinner, you'll never see a need for a Savior. If you are not, again, there's ever, never any conviction, there will never be any conversion. And so the point is that this is Paul's message, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Well, I want to hear how wonderful I am. I want to hear how beautiful I am, how glorious I am, how blessed God is to have me on His side. I want to hear seven steps to live in a more successful life. I want to hear all these wonderful things about myself because I love me. And Paul says, no. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, dead. What does he mean by dead? Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. Now let me ask you a question. Can a dead person understand anything? Can a dead person speak? Can a dead person read? Can a dead person comprehend? Can a dead person share anything? Is a dead person spiritual in any way, shape, or form? The answer is no. You go down to the morgue. You know, I've done done funerals. And every time I do one, the person in the casket never looks like the person I knew. Isn't that true? You know why? Because it's the tent. The person moved out. But here's the thing. Before we know Christ, we're like dead tents spiritually. The light's on, but nobody's home. We're dead spiritually. And he says here, you possess no life. Just as a corpse cannot respond to physical stimulation, so a spiritually dead person is unable to respond to spiritual things. Again, a corpse has no appetite for food or drink. He feels no pain. He is dead. And so is the spirit of the unsaved person. Let me say this, because this is real popular in Santa Cruz. There's no such thing as a spiritual person who doesn't know God. I'm blown away by the people who say, well, he doesn't know God. Well, he's not a Christian, but he's really spiritual. No, he's not. He's dead. <laughs> Amen. He's dead. Why? Because apart from Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. For you were dead. He's reminding them of who they were before they came to know Christ. He's talked to them about the power of the resurrection, the power of Almighty God to raise Jesus from the dead, is the same power that's available for you and I to raise us from the dead spiritually. Praise God. Amen? Now he says here, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Again, I want to say this. The Dalai Lama. People would say he was real spiritual, right? You mean a Buddhist monk? Real spiritual. A New Age yoga instructor. Real spiritual. No, dead. 
Pastor Dave, why are you so direct? Because the Bible is. Amen? He doesn't say here, you are kind of sleepy. <laughs> you know, you're kind of dozing off. You weren't real attentive. He says, no, you're dead. And praise God, we need to see who we were so we'll know who we need to be. So we'll know who we need to reach out to. Because, you know what, a dead person can't help himself. A dead person can't resuscitate himself. A dead person can't do enough good works to get up and start walking around. A dead person must be impacted. A dead person must be resurrected from the dead. Now, what caused this death? You who were dead. What caused the death? Trespasses and sins. Now, oneness between God and man was broken in one moment. When did it happen? Where? Garden of Eden. And it happened the very moment man sinned. Because God is perfect holy God, and perfect holy God cannot have sin in His presence. There cannot be one sin in heaven, or we'd have earth part two. So there can be no sin in heaven, just as there can be no sin in any relationship between God and man. So we died when we sinned. And you know what's interesting? That it's speaking, of course, of spiritual death, but it's also true that prior to death in the garden, nothing died. Animals didn't die. Plants didn't die. I believe if they hadn't, well, we knew they were going to because they're people and they do, but if they hadn't chose to sin, they could have lived in that garden forever. No pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no death. A picture of heaven. But they chose to sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. What does the word sin mean? It means to miss. That's what it means. It means to miss. It's an archery term and a distance from perfection. You got a target? There's only one spot that's perfection. The bullseye. Any place you hit separated from perfection is called the sin distance. In old England, they had a game where they shot arrows through a hoop. They had a hoop up high above the ground, and they shot arrows through it. And when they would miss the arrow, or miss the hoop, that person was called the sinner, because he missed the mark. So, what caused us to be dead? We missed the mark. The Lord tells us, be ye perfect, for I am perfect. How are we doing on that program? How's that working out for us? Not too good. But praise God that we're going to get to verse 4 in a minute. And praise God we're going to see that we do have hope. But there is the fact that we have all missed the mark that makes us sinners. The standard again is perfection. Be you perfect for I am perfect. Well again, some may come closer to the mark. It doesn't matter how close you come, you're still a sinner. You know, if we're, we all got on a cruise ship and we were 50 miles offshore and the ship went down. And... Some of you didn't know how to swim and you drowned immediately. And then some of us, maybe we swam a little bit and we swam two miles in. We're still 48 miles from shore and we drown. And you know what? What if there's a marathon swimmer in here and you swim 40 and a half, 49 and a half miles, you can see the shore and glug, 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 you drown. Guess what? You're all dead. It doesn't matter how close you got, you still miss the mark. It doesn't matter if you're more holy or a better swimmer than Osama bin Laden. But I'm better than him. I'm no Osama bin Laden. I'm no mass murderer. I never killed anybody. You know what? God, as I've said many times, doesn't grade on the curve. He grades at the cross. It's not how you do in relation to other people, but how you're doing in comparison to him. We've all fallen short. That's why we were dead. 
That's why they were dead, because they were sinners. They had missed the mark. They had fallen short. How is it possible for a person to leave a better life, lead a better life when that person has no life at all? People think, well, at least they're helping them. They're doing good things. I just had this discussion recently with one of my relatives talking about some talk show host saying, well, he does wonderful things. I'm like, really? Like what? Well, he helps this person and gave this. I said, they're still spiritually dead. They need Jesus. Is that all it's ever about with you? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. What else is there? I'm not saying don't bake cookies for your neighbor. That's a nice thing. But you know what? Not going to get them into heaven. Amen? And the most important thing we can do for them is not bake them cookies, but share with them the love. Bake them some cookies and then go share the love of God with them. Amen? It's not just doing good things because good things, you can't lead a better life until you come to know Christ. Period. Now, on a side note, since the youth group is in here, guys... The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That means if you're unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, you're dating a dead guy. You're dating a corpse. How many of you would go down to the morgue and, you know, get a corpse and drag it into your living room and say, Dad, here's my prom date. You wouldn't do that. Why? Because, well, we'd put you in a padded room, right? We wouldn't do that. But here's the point. That we think that somehow that we can resurrect them. We can't. We can't do it. Only God can do it. Amen? And too often we want to link ourselves with those who are dead and we think that the stink... Well, if you put a dead person in your car for a month, you're going to start smelling like a dead person. And if you hang out with the world long enough, you're going to become like the world. Amen? And so he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How many people are sinners here this morning? Raise your hand. Praise God. If your hand's not up, we need to talk. All right? <laughs> you are a sinner and now you're a liar. Okay? <laughs> now here's the thing. The Christian life is not a vow to do better. It's not making an effort to be better. It's a transformed life that can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only way. It's not doing better. It's not being better. It's not being graded higher. Because this death brings separation. And no corpse is any more less dead than any other. That sweet old lady who lives next door to you is just as dead as the drunk in the gutter. Why? Because they're sinners in need of a Savior. She might be a half a mile from shore and he's 50 miles away. But you know what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And God can reach out to the person 50 miles offshore just as easily as the one who's five feet away. So what is sin? It's missing the mark. It's any wrongdoing thought or word or deed that falls short of God's perfection. Now, he says sins and he says also trespasses. Now, what is a trespass? In, in it's also a sin, but here's what it is. It's a sin that's committed in open violation of a known law. I think of it as rebellion. You see the no trespassing sign, and you go in anyway. You know, one is missing the mark, one is falling short, and the other one is, I know it's rebellion, I know it's contrary to God's word, and I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. Now I have to confess to you, most of my sin is, is like a trespass. How about you? Don't you know you're sinning when you sin? What's the, what's the answer? Yes, you do. Now, if you don't know, you need more conviction from the Holy Spirit. Amen? The fact that you are convicted is a good thing. It means you're His child. But it's a trespass, is a conscious decision to sin. I know it's wrong. I know it's contrary to what God's told me to do. But I'm going to do it anyway. And then we often want to blame God when the consequences come for walking in disobedience. Have you ever done that before? 
I have. Man, Lord, how did you let this happen to me? You know what? I gave you a whole book full of stuff. So don't do this because I love you. Don't play on the freeway. Don't blame me when you get hit by the bus. Amen? The Word of God is clear for a reason. It gives us direction for a reason. And so who, who we were outside of Christ is we were dead in trespasses and sins. And just in case they think he's talking about somebody else, look what he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, as we move on through verses 2 and 3, we're going to see signs of a dead man. What does a dead man look like? Now, most of us would know what a dead person looks like physically, but what does a dead person look like spiritually? How do you recognize a dead person? How do you recognize somebody who's spiritually dead, who doesn't know God? Look what he says here. They walk according to the course of this world. Now, the word there for walk is the Greek for meandering. That means they're just walking along without any purpose, without any goal, without any direction, and they're just meandering in the course of this world. They're conformed to this world without, again, no eternal purpose, just existing. Now, the course of this world, again, conformed to the things of this world. The word there for course is where, is where we get the word for a weather vane. It just means that it blows in whatever direction the wind is, takes it. Just going with the flow. I used to tell the youth group when I was a youth pastor, any dead fish can go with the flow. Right? Any dead fish can go with the flow. You throw it in there, boom, there it goes. It takes a living fish to swim against it. It takes somebody whose purpose in their heart to swim in the opposite direction. Without Christ, again, what happens is we are conformed to this world. The, the Word of God tells us, Be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Everybody else is doing it. Get on board. Just be like the world. Guys, we're not going to reach people by being like the world. I have to tell you, it breaks my heart to see what happens in the church today about we need to be more like the world so we can reach more people when that's not why Jesus reached people. Be not conformed to this world. We're not to be like the world. We're to be different from the world. The world has a mold into which it pours its devotees. The mold of immorality and selfishness and ungodliness and violence and rebellion. And you know what is so sad about this? That according to the course of this world, who's in charge of this world? Look at the next part of the verse. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So if you're going with the flow, guess who you're following? Satan. If you're following the world's pattern, you're following Satan. Well, Pastor Dave, that's... Man, it can't be that direct and clear, is it? Well, did you read that verse? He says they're according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan has set a course for this world. Turn on your TV and you'll find out. Listen to music and you'll find out. He's orchestrated the world's trends, the acceptance of abortion and homosexuality and pornography and adultery and fornication and drugs and alcohol, etc. Who is the one who's made, desensitized us to it to the point where now even Christians debate whether or not these things are okay? I had a Christian just talking to me yesterday saying to me, well, no one in the Bible doesn't say that homosexuality is wrong or adultery. What Bible are you reading? 
well, I really don't read the Bible. Well, duh, right? (laughs) The point here is, look, we get desensitized to sin because we watch it. You know, the first time I heard about a drive-by shooting 15 years ago, I remember how blown away I was. You're kidding me. Somebody drove by with a machine gun and just shot into a house and killed a bunch of people. Now, you hear about them all the time. Oh, another drive-by shooting. Been desensitized to sin. The first time you saw, heard someone swear on TV. What are they doing? First time you heard someone swear in a movie. What is that about? And now, it's commonplace, and you're a prude if you have a problem with it. Call me a prude. Because I have a problem with it. Why? Because we are to be simple concerning that which is evil. And you heard me say a few weeks ago that we should not be entertained by the very sins that Christ died for because we will be desensitized to that sin. And before you know it, we will find ourselves at least, again, thinking it's not that bad. It's really not that big a deal. You know, living together outside of marriage, not that big a deal. Uh, It's sin. Amen? Amen? Fornication, sin. You know what's sad? It's a rarity today that people stand up on their wedding day having waited for the person God has for them. It's a rarity, even in the church. You know what? That's wrong. And God says it's wrong because God knows what's best for us. Now, if you've blown it, you can get right with God and you don't have to blow it anymore. Amen? You can seek first his kingdom from this point forward. But Satan is the one who's got us to think, again, people are fighting to kill babies. I don't understand this. You know what, by the way, I don't get real political, but I'm going to for a second. We need to vote yes on Prop 73. I don't know if you know what that is. It's just saying that a girl under the age of 18 cannot get an abortion without her parents' consent. You can't give her an aspirin, but you can kill her baby without talking to her parents. Something's wrong. Amen? It's not a choice, it's a child. And you know what, we need to vote yes on 73. Now again, here's what we really need to do. We need to pray for those young women. It's not the symptom, it's the heart that needs to change. We need to see their lives change and lives transform. But what does Satan do? He desensitizes us to sin. He gets us to the point where we're just going with the flow. We're just being like the world. We listen to their music. We're entertained by their stuff. We do everything that they do. And people look at us and have no idea that we're saved. Why? Because we're just like the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember that sin and disobedience and conforming to the world is following Satan. Man, that's harsh, isn't it? But you know what? What does Satan want to do to you? He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan's whole focus is to get us. He knows where he's headed and he wants you to go with him. And if he knows that you are saved, he wants to render you ineffective so you don't take anybody else with you. That's who Satan is. You know what? I'll say, I hate him. How about that? Hate him. Now, I don't address him. I let God take care of him. Amen? People pray for Satan's salvation. Uh, Too late for that. (laughs) I had someone tell me, I'm praying for Satan's salvation. I'm like, you know what? Pray for something else. (laughs) Not going to happen. We need to pray that people will be delivered from Satan. Amen? Amen? And you know what, I still, I was a youth pastor so long, my heart breaks for teenagers. Because I see the, the choices you guys have to make, I see all the influences, I see the music and all the stuff. Man, it breaks my heart. And you know what, God, do a work in our young people. God, deliver us out. Quit going with the flow, you guys. Don't be like the world. Be in it, but not of it. Amen? Well, that's for all of us. 
Make a stand for the Lord. Let, you know, let's be different. It's okay. Amen? I want to be right with God instead of right with man. You know what? Satan wanted to be God, and those who follow him often have the same problem. They want to be God. I'm not God telling me what to do. I'm not going to church and tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. How's that working out for you so far? Not very good, but I want to do it anyway. I've yet to meet anybody with joy and with peace that's living life the way they you know, think they want to. Your flesh will never be satisfied, you guys. Amen? You can never feed it enough to where it'll stop being hungry. It will only want more. He says there, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So disobedience, those who are walking in disobedience, those who are following the course of this world are following Satan. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. He reminds them again. He joins himself. He says there we. We walked in the lust of the flesh. How many of you have walked in the lust of your flesh? Raise your hand. We have, haven't we? And he's reminding them, not to condemn them, but we're going to see in a minute here, to encourage them about what God has done for them. To say, here's who you were. Here's where you were. Here's where you were headed. Here's where the consequences that were right in front of you. But good news, God came along. And God transformed and changed everything. It says there, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now listen, when you are dead in your trespasses and sins, when you are walking in disobedience, when you are letting the world standard be your standard, it says in this verse that you are condemned. You are children of what? Promise? What does it say? Read your Bibles, they're right in front of you. Children of what? Wrath. Children of wrath. When we walk in the course of this world, we have made a choice to be children, not of promise, not of grace, but of wrath. Now, I want to make this very clear. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves there by rejecting Him. We have to say no to the cross over and over and over. And he says, those who walk in the lust, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, again, are by nature children of wrath. Those who are spiritually dead, who walk in rebellion, who fulfill the lust of the flesh, who follow Satan's course, rightfully deserve God's judgment. I want to make it clear. The Bible knows nothing about everyone being children of God. You ever heard that before? We're all God's children. No, you're not. No, you're not. How do we become God's children? We must be adopted. Amen? If we're not adopted into his family, we're not all children of God. Those who don't know God are children of wrath. Those who follow the course of this world, those who reject the cross of Christ, those who say, I got my own path, I'm going my own way, I got it figured out, I'm pretty smart, I mean, I'm 14, I got it all figured out, or whatever, right? And too often we have this mentality that we don't need God, and so we just head in that direction, and guess what? We're children of wrath. We're not all God's children. John 3.18 says this, He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. Who's condemned? Everybody who does not believe in the name of the only begotten of the Son of God. Is that pretty clear? Are there any other ways, any other paths, any other directions, any other? No. And I'm glad, aren't you? You know, my my kids go to a 
I'm on a Vista Christian school, two of my kids, and it's at my son's football game yesterday, and they have this mural that I love. It's a huge mural. It's massive, about the size of that wall over there, and it says on it, it's got a one-way sign that says, The Way, and it's pointing to the cross. And every time I walk by there, I just, amen. That's when my kids go to school here. You know what I mean? But praise God. The way and pointing to the cross, it didn't have the cross with Buddha sitting next to it or a pile of good works or anything else because there's only one way. There's only one hope. There's only one truth. There's only one life. And if we reject Almighty God, we've been condemned already. Unbelievers deserve God's wrath. They're not victims of anything except the righteous judgment they've brought upon themselves by rejecting Almighty God. Now people say, well, Jesus didn't really talk this way. You ever heard people say that to you? Christians are so straightforward about things, and Jesus didn't talk that way. Have you read the Bible? What did Jesus call the Pharisees? A brood of what? Vipers. He said, you guys are a bunch of snakes. These are the guys wearing the black robes, walking around, praying in the street. You're snakes. And he said, you know what else he said? You're whited sepulchers. That means you guys are tombs. On the outside, you look really good. On the inside, you're filled with dead men's bones. That's what Jesus said. He called them snakes and said that their father was the devil. Now these, this, these are the popes of the day, guys. These are the bishops, the high priests, the rel- most religious people on the planet walking around. He said, you guys are snakes and your father's the devil. They said, we're of Abraham. No, you're not. You're of the devil. That's Jesus speaking. Now, we look at that sometimes, and again, because of the course of this world, you view that as being harsh. You know what it is? If somebody's drowning, you do whatever it takes to get them out of the water. You don't worry about whether or not they're going to be offended when you get them out out to shore. I better not drag him too hard. He might get upset. No, you just drag him in. Punch him in the nose if you have to, right? Dude, you're coming in. I'm not you. Drag him. You know what? The Lord loves us enough to be direct with us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he's not putting up some, you know, you know, people look at the Bible sometimes, they come up with all these codes and all this stuff. You ever seen this stuff? God's not hiding the message. Amen? It's right there. Well, every 57th letter is, an, you know, and you multiply it by six, the number of man, and you divide it by the date today, and that tells us that the Lord's coming back on October 4th. I had an email that said that like a month ago. I emailed the person back on October 5th. Are you still there? Because (laughs) the the point is, nobody knows the day or the hour. We need to quit looking for the hidden message. Just read the obvious one. Amen? It's right there in front of you. Jesus didn't, you know, make it some mystery. Oh, i got to try to. Here it is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty straightforward. There it is. There's the answer. And those who reject him are dead in their trespasses and sin. All once flowing again and following Satan's lead. And they have lived lives separate from Almighty God. We're ruled by the lust of their flesh and the desires of their mind. By nature, we're children of wrath. We're under divine judgment. By our own choice, again, to follow after our flesh. We're headed to eternal separation. We're hopeless and helpless. We're spiritually dead. We're outside of Christ. But look at the first two words of verse 4. If you underline verses in your Bible or words in your Bible, underline these two words. But God. Man, I love this. I almost titled the message, But God. 
Because here's who we were, here's who we were headed, here's the disaster, here's who we were following, but God. Not but Dave, right? Not but I. But I then got right. Walked away and started living the way I was supposed to. And now God's so blessed to have me on his side, right? No, that's not what it says. It says, but God. It's God who did it. So we've seen, again, who we are in Christ, who we were outside of Him. And now look at God's work for us. Look what it says here. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. But God, who is rich in mercy. We were dead, but God. We were separated, but God. We were deserving of judgment and wrath, but God. Not but I, but God. We were perverse and wicked and conformed to the world. We were deceived by the enemy, but God. But God what? But God loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says there, but God who is rich in mercy. What is mercy? Not giving you what you deserve. You know, don't let these words come out of your mouth because you, don't, you really don't want them. I don't deserve that. Ever done that? Said that before? I have. I don't want what I deserve. How about you? Mercy is not giving you what you deserve. What we deserve is eternal separation in a in place of torment and judgment for all eternity, hellfire. That's what we deserve. But God, in His infinite mercy, who in His rich mercy, because of His great love, why does He show us mercy? Because He loves us. Let me ask you a question. When did God start loving you? When did God start loving you? When you got your act together? Now that you quit smoking, all right, I love you. And too often we put God in this this thing where if I can just get good enough, God will start to love me. Or if I do this, then God will love me more. Can I tell you something? You can't do anything to make God love you more because He already loves you infinitely. Isn't that incredible? That's God. He loves you. Now, because of His love for us, He's given mercy to us, not giving us what we deserve. Praise the Lord for His love and His grace and His mercy. He's loved us not when we became lovable, but as the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As we walked in rebellion, Christ died for us. As we were aligned with Satan and following the course of this world, Christ died for us. He loves us, and He's loved us before the foundation of the world. Look what it says in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses... So he loved us when we were dead. Now, will he force you to be resurrected? Answer is no. He won't. But he'll offer it to every one of you. Salvation is offered universally, must be accepted individually. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So God's desire is that none of us should perish, but He's not going to force us unto salvation. He desires to give us mercy. He loves us infinitely and beyond what we could ever believe or understand. Even we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. He made us alive together in Christ by His grace, not by our good works. You haven't been saved because you've been so good. You've been saved because He is so good. Amen? And I love this verse. It should be an encouragement to us. He made us alive together with Christ 
by grace you have been saved. You guys have heard me use the G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You get God's riches and He pays for it. What a great God we serve. Here's who we were and here's what He did. Why did He do it? Not because we were perfect, but because He's perfect. And He offers that salvation to each and every one of us. It says there, and raised us up together. The word raised up is the word resurrection. You were dead and He resurrected you. You couldn't think, you couldn't speak, you couldn't do anything, you were oblivious, and He resurrected you. When we're baptized, baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. While it's not necessary for salvation, I want to encourage you, we should be baptized as an act of obedience. Amen? But when we're baptized, it's a picture of the fact that we used to be dead in our trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive in Christ. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of our old man. We're new creations in Him. He raised us up in Him. Who are we in Christ? We're not dead anymore. Amen? We're not spiritually dead anymore. We're not separated anymore. We've been raised up. We've been resurrected. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know what I love about this? It tells me that I'm seated with Him right now. We talk about going to heaven someday, but you know what? We're already in intimate fellowship with the Lord right now. In His eyes, we're seated together with Him in heavenly places. That also is an encouragement to me, and I know some of you will disagree with me, and you can, but you'd be wrong, that (laughs) I'm kidding. Not really, but we can't lose our salvation. You know why? Because he says no one will ever snatch us out of his hand and we're seated with him in heavenly places. Is he kicking us out of heaven? I don't think so. Now, some people will pretend or look like they know God and they never did. And that's between them and the Lord and I'm not the judge of that. But if you truly know God, you will abide. Amen? You will endure. You'll blow it, but conviction will be there and he'll draw you back into himself. And we're seated with him in heavenly places. Man, we were dead and now we're seated with Christ. We were spiritually blind, and now we've been resurrected and made alive in Him. We ought to be encouraged by this message this morning. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. That is a great verse and a verse that should be underlined. God didn't just save us from hell. His ultimate purpose was that the church would glorify God's grace for all eternity. Why did He save us? Again, to deliver us from hell, to draw us into His presence, but also that we would be a reflection of His grace to the world around us and then for all eternity. When people see us, they ought to think, man, God's gracious. Amen? Amen. Too often what we do is we... Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I read my Bible and I kind of, you know, mapped out a track for myself and, I, you know, I got it right and I figured out who he is and now I'm serving him. And No, God's grace rescued me from death. Amen? And that's true of every one of us in this room. Every one of us was a sinner separated from God. And we are to be again, show his exceeding riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to pour grace upon us that we might reflect His grace to those around us. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God. 
I, there's got to be some people in this church right now, that's your favorite verse. <laughs> Underline your Bible. God's grace. Our salvation is not based on the work that we do, but the work that He has done. Salvation is a gift. It's not a paycheck. Amen? If we had to work for it, it would be a paycheck. It wouldn't be a gift. It is a free gift given not because of anything we've done, but because of who He is. You know what? My parents used to give me gifts when I was a kid when I was totally blowing it. And you know what? They would often tell me, I, I just want you to know what God's grace is all about. I think, you know, it's a great example because they didn't give it to me because I mowed the lawn like I was supposed to or I was off playing ball with my friends all day, didn't mow the lawn, I'd come home and they blessed me anyway. And they're saying, that's God's grace. Wow, I kind of like that. I'm kind of down for the grace, but I don't write that word down. That's a good word. It's by grace we've been saved, not of works. Because if it was works, then what would happen? We'd be puffed up. Look what it says in verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If it was based on works, we'd all walk around talking about how much we've done, you know how much I've done for God. Have you seen my name on the tote board? Have you seen where I'm at? I'm up to principality level now, right? And we would be walking around, and you know what's sad, guys? All kidding aside, you know what's sad? There's so many churches out there that it's all works-based. And you know when it's works-based, you can never do enough? So you walk around burdened and condemned all the time. But when you understand it's God's grace, He who the Son sets free is free indeed. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Amen? We're not condemned anymore. Now, should we produce works as Christians? Absolutely. But it's not the works that save us. The works are the fruit of salvation. It's not faith or works or faith plus works. It's faith that works. And again, salvation is a gift. The veil's been torn. No more sacrifices need to be made. The Lamb of God has paid the price. In Adam, we were under sin. In Christ, we've been made alive. We've been resurrected. We've been seated with Him. And we have the promise of heaven. Salvation, not by our goodness, but by His grace. Not by our works, but by faith. Not a reward, but a free gift of God. And again, not by what I've done, because then I'll start taking glory for myself. Who should be glorified for your salvation? One person. There's only one celebrity in Christianity, and his name is Jesus Christ. No man should ever glory. Be careful. Don't put men on a pedestal. Don't magnify Christian rock groups. Don't. I even struggle with autographs. I don't get it. Look, this is your pastor now. I'll step over here. This is my opinion, all right? But I just don't, I don't get it. Because what we start to do is we start to deify man. Oh, who alone should be worshipped? Jesus Christ. Nobody else. Amen? And if we worship others, we tend to want to be worshipped ourselves. But if we worship God alone, then our worship remains where it needs to be. Not by what I've done, but in and through Christ. Last verse. God's work in us. So good it says. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there. In Greek is poema, which is where we get the word poem. We are his work of art. I like that, don't you? We are his work of art. Each Christian is a work in process. We're being sanctified. We're being set apart, transformed more and more into his image. By the way, side note, December 7th. Mark this date down on your calendar. So Wednesday night, 
I want you all to come. I'd love to have this guy on a Sunday. I've been trying to get him here for four years. He's coming on a, on a Wednesday night. It's called Pottersfield Ministry. And what he does, it's the most unique thing I've ever seen. But he's, uh, he's a master craftsman, a master potter, but he's an evangelist like very few people I've ever met. And he makes a pot while he's sharing his testimony. His wife, before she got saved, was a singer on Broadway, and she sings. And I'll tell you what, I've seen it ten times. I'm brought to tears every time. And every time people walk out the door, they say the same thing. If I had known it was going to be like that, I would have brought so-and-so. I want to encourage you, bring your unsaved friends. If you know anybody that's into the arts at all, bring them. But I'll tell you what, when you watch him working on that clay, and how hard he has to press into it, as in an hour, he builds this beautiful pot. The Bible tells us that he is the potter and we are the clay. And it's such a clear picture. And that's what this verse says. We're his workmanship. He's working on us, conforming us more into his image. We're his poem. We're his work of art. Lord, sometimes I think that you forget to work on this one. But God's working on us, Amen. He's conforming us more into His image. Praise God. James said, faith without works is dead. And the truth is, that as God works in us, that He'll do work through us. Amen? As God is, if you fall in love with the Lord, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start loving people. As you start falling in love with the Lord, you're going to start having a burden for the lost. As you fall in love with the Lord, you're going to want to serve and minister to others. It's not going to be about you anymore, but it's going to be about Him. You've heard me say joy, Jesus, others, yourself, J-O-I. Put Jesus first, others second, yourself last, and you'll have joy like nobody else. Too often we have yoge. Too often it's all about me. And we need to make it all about Him. So in closing, who we are in Christ, who we were before we came to Christ, outside of Him, we were separated from God. We were following Satan's lead. We were ruled by the lust of the flesh and the desires of the mind. By nature, we were children of wrath. We were facing eternal judgment. We were outside of Christ. We were headed for destruction, but God. Amen? Here's who we were, but God. Praise God. Amen? But God, because of His grace, not our good works, delivered us, resurrected us from the death we once were in. And now He's working through us, His workmanship creating us for good works, using us for His glory. I'm blown away that God wants to use me that He might be glorified. But He does. God could open up the sky and say, you all need to get saved. Couldn't He do that? But He chooses to do what instead? Use us. In about five minutes here, Pastor Bill and I have to head off to India. Pray for us. We're going to go catch a 215 flight and we need to be in San Francisco at 1215 and that's not going to happen. But... But you know what? God could just open up the sky and speak to the people of India. But instead, he's using a group called Gospel for Asia. We as a church, with you guys and us combined, support around 100 of their missionaries. And these guys go out two by two and go to unreached people groups and share the love of God with people who have never heard Jesus' name before. In places where they face persecution. And we have the privilege to go over there and teach these guys how to study and teach the Bible because they don't have commentaries. They don't have Bible software, and sometimes it's not so bad. They have the Bible. And so I want to encourage you to be praying. But the point is that God uses us when He could do it Himself. Count it a privilege, you guys. May we fall deeper in love with the Lord and be delivered from the struggles of this life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your love and your grace. You're a great and an awesome God. Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us, Lord, to not take lightly the work you've done for us. That we would not completely forget where we've come from. That yes, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Yes, we were outside of your will. Yes, we were facing eternal judgment. But God, you paid the price for us. You've raised us from the dead. Lord, as we go to this time of communion now, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, how it perfectly fits into this morning's chapter of just looking back and remembering what we've been delivered from, looking at the work of the cross, the work that you did for us that we might be delivered. And Lord, we continue to lift up Santa Cruz County. We so desperately want to see you do a work here, Lord. But Father, begin in our hearts, even now as we go to this time of communion. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... God bless you guys. I'll see you in two weeks. Now, by the way, it's time of communion. We need to get reverent. But let me just say this. I hear rumors that when I'm out of town, people don't come to church. Now, I know that wouldn't happen, right? So I think, who's taking roll next week? No, I'm kidding. God bless you guys. Pray for me. I'll be praying for you, all right? God bless you.